Chapter Twenty of the Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Smiling Jane. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter Twenty. A crimson blush her beauteous face overspread. Rearing her cheeks by turns, with white and red, the driving colors never at a stay, run here and there, and flush and fade away. Delightful change, thus Indian ivory shows, with which the bordering paint of purple glows, or lilies, damask by the neighboring rose, Dryden. The wish-for night at length arrived, and Amanda arrayed herself for it with a fluttering heart. The reflection of her mirror did not depress her spirits. Hope had increased the brilliancy of her eyes and given an additional glow to her complexion. Ellen, who delighted in its charms of her dear young lady, declared many of the Irish ladies. Would have reason to envy her that night, and Fitzalan, when he entered the parlor, was struck with her surpassing loveliness. He gazed on her with a rapture that brought tears into his eyes, and felt a secret pride at the idea of the marchioness beholding this sweet descendant of her neglected sister. Into such beauty and blown so fair. Though poverty's cold wind and crushing rain beat keen and heavy on her tender ears, no," said he to himself, "the title Euphrasia, if she equals, cannot at least surpass my Amanda. Meekness and innocence dwell upon the brow of my child, but the haughty marchioness will teach pride." To lower upon Lady Euphrasia, Amanda, on reaching Grainville, found the avenue full of carriages. The lights dispersed through the house gave it quite the appearance of an illumination. It seemed, indeed, the mansion of gaiety and splendor. Her knees trembled as she ascended the stairs. She wished for time to compose herself. But the door opened, her name was announced, and Mrs. Kilcoben came forward to receive her. The room, though spacious, was extremely crowded. It was decorated in a fanciful manner with festoons of flowers intermingled with variegated lamps. Immediately over the entrance was the orchestra, and opposite to it sat the marchioness and her party. The heart of Amanda beat, if possible, with increased quickness on the approach of Mrs. Kilcoben, and her voice was lost in her emotions. Recollecting, however, that the scrutinizing eyes of Lord Mortimer and her imperious relations were now on her, she almost immediately recovered composure, and with her usual elegance walked up the room. Most of the company were strangers to her, and she heard a general buzz of, "Who is she? 
accompanied with expressions of admiration from the gentlemen, among whom were the officers of a garrison town near Grangeville. Confused by the notice she attracted, she hastened to the first seat she found vacant, which was near the Marchioness. Universal, indeed, was the admiration she had excited among the male part of the company by her beauty, unaffected graces, and simplicity of dress. She wore a robe of plain white lutestring and a crape turban ornamented with a plume of drooping feathers. She had no appearance of finery except a chain of pearls about her bosom from which hung her mother's picture and a light wreath of embroidered laurel intermingled with silver blossoms round her petticoat. Her hair, in its own native and glossy hue, floated on her shoulders and partly shaded a cheek where the purity of the lily was tinted with the softest bloom of the rose. On gaining a seat, her confusion subsided. She looked up, and the first eyes she met were those of Lord Mortimer, who leaned on Lady Euphrasia's Sutherland's chair, fastened on her face with a scrutinizing earnestness, as if he wished to penetrate the recesses of her heart and discovered whether he yet retained a place in it. She blushed, and looking from him, perceived she was an object of critical attention to the Marchioness and Lady Euphrasia. There was a malignant expression in their countenances, which absolutely shocked her, and she felt a sensation of horror at beholding the former, who had so largely contributed to the sorrows of her mother. Can it be possible, said Lady Euphrasia, replying to a young and elegant officer who stood by her in a tone of affectation and with an impertinent sneer, that you think her handsome? Handsome, exclaimed he with warmth, as if involuntarily repeating her ladyship's word. I think her bewitchingly irresistible. They told me I was coming to the land of saints, but glancing his sparkling eyes around and fixing them on Amanda, I find it is the land of goddesses. The marchioness haughtily frowned. Lady Euphrasia smiled satirically, tossed her head and played with her fan. The propensities to envy and ill-nature, which the marchioness had shown in her youth, were no less visible in age. As they were then excited on her own account, so were they now on her daughter's. To engross praise and admiration for her, she wished beauty blasted and merit extirpated. Nor did she ever fail, when in her power to depreciate one, and cast an invidious cloud of calumny over the other. She beheld Amanda with envy and hatred, notwithstanding her partiality to her daughter. She could not avoid seeing her vast inferiority in point of personal charms to her young relation. 
True, Lady Euphrasia possessed a fortune which would always ensure her attention, but it was that unimpassioned and studied attention selfishness dictates, the mere tribute of flattery. How different from the spontaneous attention which Amanda excited, who, though portionless and untitled, was beheld with admiration, followed with praise, and courted with assiduity. Lady Euphrasia's mind was the counterpart of her mother's, but in figure she resembled her father. Her stature was low, her features contracted, and though of the same age as Amanda, their harsh expression made her appear much older. Though blessed with the abundant gifts of fortune, she was unhappy. If, from anyone's manner, she conceived that they thought nature had not been quite so liberal to her. In the domestic circle, constant flattery kept her in good humor, but when out, she was frequently chagrined at seeing women, infinitely below her in rank and fortune, more noticed than herself. At the ball, she supposed she should have appeared as little less, at least, than a demigoddess. Art and fashion were exhausted in adorning her, and she entered the room with all the insolence of conscience, rank, and affectation of beauty. As she walked, she appeared scarcely able to support her delicate frame, and her languishing eyes were half closed. She could, however, see there was a number of pretty women present and felt disconcerted. The respect, however, which she was paid, a little revived her, and having contrived to detain Lord Mortimer by her chair and Sir Charles Bingley, the young officer already mentioned, who was colonel of a regiment quartered in an adjacent town, she soon felt her spirits uncommonly exhilarated by the attentions of two of the most elegant men in the room and like a proud sultana in the midst of her slaves, was enjoying the compliments she exhorted from them by her prefectory speeches. When the door opened, and Amanda, like an angel of light, appeared to dissolve the mists of vanity and self-importance. Lord Mortimer was silent, but his speaking eyes confessed his feelings. Sir Charles Bingley, who had no secret motive to conceal his, openly avowed his admiration, to which Lady Euphrasia replied, as had been already mentioned. All the rapture Sir Charles expressed, Lord Mortimer felt. His soul seemed on the wing to fly to Amanda, to utter its feelings, to discover hers, and chide her for her conduct. This first emotion of tenderness, however, quickly subsided on recollecting what that conduct had been, how cruelly, how ungratefully she had used him. Fled in the very moment of hope and expectation, leaving him a prey to distrust, anxiety, and regret, he dreaded some fatal mystery, some improper attachment, experience had rendered him suspicious, which neither she 
nor her father could avow, for never did he imagine that the scrupulous delicacy of Fitzalan alone had affected their separation. He still adored Amanda. He neither could nor desired to drive her from his thoughts, except well assured she was unworthy of being harboured in them and felt unutterable impatience to have her mysterious conduct explained. From Tudor Hall, he had repaired to London, restless and unhappy. Soon after his arrival, the Marquis proposed his accompanying him to Ireland. This he declined, having reason to think Lord Cherbury meditated an alliance for him with his family. The Earl expressed regret at his refusal. He said he wished he would join the Marquis's party, as he wanted his opinion relative to the state of Castle Carberry, where a man of integrity then resided, who would have any alterations or repairs he might think necessary executed in the most eligible manner. He mentioned the name of Fitzalan. Lord Mortimer was surprised and agitated. He concealed his emotions, however, and with apparent carelessness, asked a few questions about him and found that he was indeed the father of Amanda. She was not mentioned, nor did he dare to inquire concerning her, but he immediately declared that since his father wished it so much, he would accompany the Marquis. This was extremely pleasing to that nobleman, and he and Lord Cherbury had in reality agreed upon a union between him and Lady Euphrasia and meant soon openly to avow their intention. Lord Mortimer suspected, and Lady Euphrasia was already apprised of it, and from vanity was pleased at the idea of being connected with a man so universally admired. Love was out of the question, for she had not sufficient sensibility to experience it. He, cautious of creating hopes which he never meant to realize, treated her only with the attention which common politeness demanded, and on every occasion seemed to prefer the marchioness conversation to hers, intending by this conduct to crush the projected scheme in embryo and spare himself the mortification of openly rejecting it. Had his heart ever been disengaged, Lady Euphrasia could never have been his choice. If Amanda, in reality, proved as amiable as he had once reason to believe her, he considered himself bound by every tie of honour as well as love, to fulfil the engagement he had entered into with her. He resolved, however, to resist every plea of tenderness in her favour, except he was thoroughly convinced she still deserved it. He went to Castle Carberry purposely to make a display of indifference and prevent any ideas being entertained of his having followed her to Ireland. He deemed himself justifiable in touching her sensibility, if indeed 
she possessed any for him. By an appearance of coldness and inattention, but determined, after a little retaliation of this kind on her, for the pain she had made him endure, to come to an explanation, and be guided by its result relative to his conduct in future to her. The character of a perfect stranger was the one he was to support throughout the evening. But her loveliness and the gallantry of Sir Charles Bingley tempted him a thousand times to break through the restraint he had imposed on himself. The Marchioness and Lady Euphrasia were not the only persons displeased by the charms of Amanda. The Miss Kilcobans saw, with evident mortification, the admiration she excited. Which they had flattered themselves with chiefly engrossing, their disappointment was doubly severe after the pain, trouble, and expense they had undergone in ornamenting their persons, after the suggestions of their vanity and the flattering encomiums of their mamma, who presided herself at their toilet every moment, exclaiming, "Well, well." Heaven help the men tonight, girls! They flutter across the room to Amanda, sweeping at least two yards of painted Tiffany after them. Assured her they were extremely glad to see her, but were afraid she was unwell, as she never looked so ill. Amanda assured them she was conscious of no indisposition, and the harmony of her features. Remained undisturbed. Miss Cole Corbin, in a half whisper, declared the Marchioness had never smiled since she had entered the room, and feared her mamma had committed a great mistake in inviting them together. The rudeness of this speech shocked Amanda. An indignant swell heaved her bosom, and she was about replying to it as it deserved. When Miss Alicia stopped her by protesting, she believed Lord Mortimer dying for Lady Euphrasia. Amanda involuntarily raised her eyes at the speech, but instead of Lord Mortimer, beheld Sir Giles Bingley, who was standing behind the young ladies. "Am I pardonable?" cried he, smiling, "for disturbing so charming a trio." But a soldier is taught never to neglect a good opportunity, and one so propitious as the present, for the wish of my heart might not again offer. The Miss Kilcobans, bridled up at this speech, plied their fans and smiled most graciously on him, certainly concluding he meant to engage one or other for the first set. Passing gently between them, he bowed gracefully to Amanda and requested the honor of her hand. She gave an assenting smile, and he seated himself beside her till the dancing commenced. The sisters cast a malignant glance over them, and swam off with a contemptuous indifference. Lady Euphrasia had expected Sir Charles. And Lord Mortimer would have been competitors for her hand, 
and was infinitely provoked by the desertion of the former to her lovely cousin. He was a fashionable and animated young man, whom she had often honoured with her notice in England, and wished to enlist in the train of her supposed adorers. Lord Mortimer could scarcely restore her good humour by engaging her. Almost immediately after him, young Kilcoburn advanced for the same purpose, and Lord Mortimer sincerely regretted he had been beforehand with him. The little fop was quite chagrined at finding her ladyship engaged, but entreated the next set he might have the supreme honour and ecstatic felicity of her hand. This, with the most impertinent affectation, she promised, if able to endure the fatigue of another dance. Amanda was next coupled to Lady Euphrasia, and endeavoured, therefore, to calm her spirits, which the rudeness of Miss Kilcoburn had discomposed, and attend to the lively conversation of Sir Charles, who was extremely pleasing and entertaining. Lord Mortimer watched them with jealous attention. His wandering glances were soon noticed by Lady Euphrasia, and her frowns and sarcastic speeches evinced her displeasure at them. He tried to recollect himself and act as politeness required. She, not satisfied with fixing his attention, endeavoured to attract Sir Charles. She spoke to him across Amanda, but all her efforts were here ineffectual. He spoke and laughed with her ladyship, but his eyes could not be withdrawn from the angelic countenance of his partner. Amanda's hand trembled as, in turning, she presented it to Lord Mortimer. But, though he extended his, he did not touch it. There was a slight in this which pierced Amanda's heart. She sighed, unconscious of doing so herself. Not so, Sir Charles, he asked her, smiling, to where or whom that sigh was wafted. This made Amanda recall her wandering thoughts. She assumed an air of sprightliness and went down the dance with much animation. When finished, Sir Charles led her to a seat near the one Lady Euphrasia and Lord Mortimer occupied. She saw the eyes of his lordship often directed towards her, and her heart fluttered at the pleasing probability of being asked to dance by him. Sir Charles regretted that the old-fashioned custom of not changing partners was over, and declared he could not leave her till she had promised him her hand for the third set. This she could not refuse, and he left her with reluctance, as the gentlemen were again standing up to seek a partner. At the same moment, Lord Mortimer quitted Lady Euphrasia. Oh, how the bosom of Amanda throbbed when she saw him approach and look at her. He paused. A faintishness came over her. He cast another glance on her and passed on. Her eye followed him and she saw him take out 
Miss Kilcobin. This indeed was a disappointment. Propriety, she thought, demanded his dancing the first set with Lady Euphrasia, but if not totally indifferent, surely he would not have neglected engaging her for the second. Yes, she said to herself, he has totally forgotten me. Lady Euphrasia is now the object and he only pays attention to those who can contribute to her amusement. Several gentlemen endeavoured to prevail on her to dance, but she pleaded fatigue and sat solitary on a window, apparently regarding the gay assembly, but in reality too much engrossed by painful thoughts to do so. The woods, silvered by the beams of the moon, recall the venerable shades of Tudor Hall to memory, where she had so often rambled by the same pale beams and heard vows of unchangeable regard. Vows registered in her heart, yet now we doubt the hope of having them fulfilled. The dancing over, the company repaired to another room for refreshments. Amanda, absorbed in thought, heeded not their almost total desertion till young Kilcobin, capering up to her, declared she looked as lonesome as a hermit in his cell, and laughing in her face, turned off with a callous impertinence. He had not noticed her before that night. He was indeed one of those little fluttering insects who bask in the rays of fortune and caught alone her favourites. Elated by an acquaintance with the Marchioness and Lady Euphrasia, he particularly neglected Amanda, not only from deeming them more worthy of his attention, but from perceiving he could take no steps more certain of gaining their favour. His words made Amanda sensible of the singularity of her situation. She arose immediately and went to the other room. Every seat was already occupied. Near the door sat Lady Euphrasia and the Miss Cole Colburns. Lord Mortimer leaned on the back of her ladyship's chair, and young Kilcobin occupied one by her side, which he never attempted, offering to Amanda. She stood, therefore, most unpleasantly by the door, and was exceedingly confused, at hearing a great many, in a whispering way, remarking the strangeness of her not being noticed by so near a relation as the Marchioness of Roslyn. A general titter at her situation prevailed among Lady Euphrasia's party. Lord Mortimer accepted. Upon my word, said the young Kilcobin, looking at Amanda, some ladies study attitudes which would be as well let alone. For the study of propriety, replied her ladyship, who appeared to have unbended from her haughtiness, she would do admirably for the figure of hope. If she had but an anchor to recline on, rejoined he. Yes, answered her ladyship with her floating locks and die-away glances. Or else, patience on a monument, 
cried he. Only she has no grief to smile at, returned Lady Euphrasia. Pardon me there, said he. She has the grief, not, indeed, that I believe she would smile at it of being totally eclipsed by your ladyship. Or what do you think, cried Lord Mortimer, whose eyes sparkled with indignation during this dialogue, of likening her to wisdom, pitying the follies of humankind, and smiling to see the shafts of malice recoiling from the bosom of innocence and modesty with contempt on those who leveled them at it? Amanda heard not these words, which were delivered in rather a low voice. Her heart swelled with indignation at the impertinence directed to her, and she would have quitted the room, but that the passage was too much crowded for her to pass. Sir Charles Bingley, occupied in attending the young lady with whom he had danced, observed not Amanda till the moment. He instantly flew to her. Alone and standing, said he, why did I not see you before? You look fatigued. She was paled with emotion. Kilcorbin, continued he, I must suppose you did not see Miss Fitzsalen, or your seat would not have been kept. Then, catching him by the arm, he raised him nimbly from his chair and directly carried it to Amanda, and having procured her refreshments, seated himself at her feet, exclaiming, This is my throne. Let kings come bow to it. Her lovely and unaffected graces had excited Sir Charles' admiration, but it was the neglect with which he saw her treated diffuse such a soothing tenderness through his manner as he now displayed. It hurt his sensibility, and had she even been plain in her appearance, would have rendered her the peculiar object of his attention. He detested the Marchioness and her daughter, for their rancorous envy, as much as he despised the Kilcobans for their mean insolence. The Marchioness told him a long tale of the shocking conduct of Amanda's parents, whose ill qualities, she declared, her looks announced her to possess, and endeavoured to depreciate her in his favour. But that was impossible. Lord, said Lady Euphrasia, Rising as she spoke, let me pass. This scene is sickening. Lord Mortimer remained behind her. He loitered about the room, and his looks were often directed towards Amanda. Her hopes began to revive. The luster rekindled in her eyes, and a soft blush again stole over her cheek. Though engaged to Sir Charles, she felt she should be pleased to have Lord Mortimer make an overture for her hand. The company were now returning to the ballroom, and Sir Charles took her hand to lead her after them. At that moment, Lord Mortimer approached. Amanda paused as if to adjust some part of her dress. He passed on to a very beautiful girl, whom he immediately engaged 
and led from the room. She followed them with her eyes and continued without moving till the fervent pressure Sir Charles gave her hand and restored her to recollection. When the set with him was finished, she would have left the house directly had her servant been there. But after putting up the horses, he had returned to Castle Carberry, and she did not expect him till a very late hour. She declared her resolution of dancing no more, and Sir Charles having avowed the same, they repaired to the card room, as the least crowded place they could find. Lady Greystock was playing at the table with the Marquis and Marchioness. She beckoned Amanda to her, and having had no opportunity of speaking before, expressed her pleasure at then seeing her. The Marquis examined her through his spectacles. The Marchioness frowned and declared, she would take care in future to avoid parties subject to such disagreeable intruders. This speech was too pointed not to be remarked. Amanda wished to appear undisturbed, but her emotions grew too powerful to be suppressed, and she was obliged to move hastily from the table. Sir Charles followed her. Curse malignity, cried he, endeavouring to screen her from observation, while tears trickled down her cheeks. But, my dear Miss Fitzalan, was your beauty and merit less conspicuous? You would have escaped it. This the vice of little minds to hate that excellence they cannot reach. It is cruel, it is shocking, said Amanda, to suffer enmity, to outlive the object who excited it, and to hate the offspring on account of the parent, the original of this picture. And she looked at her mother's. Merited not such conduct, Sir Charles gazed on it. It was wet with the tears of Amanda. He wiped them off, and pressing the handkerchief to his lips, put it in his bosom. At this instant, Lord Mortimer appeared. He had, indeed, been for some time an unnoticed observer of the progress of this tete-a-tete. As soon as he perceived he had attracted their regard, he quitted the room. His lordship is like a troubled spirit tonight, wandering to and fro, said Sir Charles. I really believe everything is not right between him and Lady Euphrasia. Something then, cried Amanda, is in agitation between him and her ladyship? So says the world, replied Sir Charles but I do not always give implicit credit to its reports. I have known Lord Mortimer this long time, and from my knowledge of him, should never have supposed Lady Euphrasia Sutherland a woman capable of pleasing him. Nay, to give my real opinion, I think him quite uninterested about her ladyship. I will not say so much as to all the other females present. I really imagine several times tonight, from his glances to you, he was on the point of requesting an introduction, which 
would not have pleased me perfectly. Mortimer possesses more graces than those which merely meet the eye, and its arrival I should by no means like to have. Amanda, confused by this discourse, endeavored to change it, and at last succeeded. They conversed pleasantly together on different subjects till they went to supper, when Sir Charles still continued his attention. Lord Mortimer was, or at least appeared to be, entirely engrossed with Lady Euphrasia, who from time to time tittered with Miss Kilcobins, and looked satirically at Amanda. On quitting the supper room, she found her servant in the hall, and immediately desired him to have the carriage drawn up. Sir Charles, who held her hand, requested her to stay a little longer, yet acknowledged it was self alone which dictated the request, as he knew she would not promote her own pleasure by complying with it. As he handed her into the carriage, he told her he should soon follow her example in retiring, as the scene so lately delightful in losing her would lose all its charms. He entreated and obtained permission to wait on her the next morning. How different was now the appearance of Amanda to what it had been at her departure from Castle Carberry. Pale, trembling, and languid, her father received her into his arms, for till she returned he could not think of going to rest and instantly guessed the cause of her dejection. His heart mourned for the pangs inflicted on his child's. When she beheld him gazing on her with mingled woe and tenderness, she tried to recruit her spirits, and after relating a few particulars of the ball and answered the minute inquiries he made relative to the conduct of the marchioness and Lady Euphrasia, he appeared unutterably affected on hearing it. Merciful power, exclaimed he, what dispositions! But you are too lovely, too like your mother, my Amanda, in every perfection, to escape their malice. Oh, may it never injure you as it did her. May that providence, whose protection I daily implore, for the sweet child of my love, the source of earthly comfort, rendered every wish, every scheme, which may be formed against her, abortive, and oh, may it yet bless me with the sight of her happiness. Amanda retired to her chamber, inexpressibly affected by the language of her father. Yes, cried she, her heart swelling with pity and gratitude to him. My sorrow in future shall be concealed to avoid exciting his. The pain inflicted by thy inconstancy, Mortimer, shall be hid within the recesses of my heart, and never shall the peace of my father be disturbed by knowing the lost of mine. The grey dawn was now beginning to advance. But Amanda had no inclination for repose. 
as she stood at the window, she heard the solemn stillness of the scene, frequently interrupted by the distant noise of carriages, carrying home the weary sons and daughters of dissipation. But a few hours ago, said she, and how gay, how animated was my soul, how dull, how cheerless now. Oh, Mortimer, but a few hours ago, and I believe myself the beloved of thine heart, but the flattering illusion is now over, and I no longer shall hope, or thou deceived. She changed her clothes, and flinging herself on the bed, from mere fatigue, at length sunk into a slumber. End of chapter 20